Okay, uh, we're going to start off the way we always start off. Kids, if I can have your attention, I want to tell you what the scripture is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about, okay? Here's where we're going. So young ones, uh, I want to tell you about Jax. He is now so old, I don't even know. Jax is now 14. So my oldest is 14 when he was three. So this is over 10 years ago. We're at seminary. This is where I went to like study the Bible and stuff. And so uh, when Jax is three, what we used to do is we used to go and, and I'd read him Bible stories. And then one night, Jack started, you know, this was like night after night after night, Jack started to ask me and his mom to take the Jesus book, that's the Bible, that's what he called his Bible, take that Jesus book, can you take the Jesus book out? Like we put him down for bed and right as he's going to bed, he's like, can you take the Jesus book? And so, yeah, sure, okay, we'll, we'll take it out. And if, you know, one night if we forgot, he would call us back, he would come wake us up in the middle of the night and say, come get the Jesus book out of my room. And, and so we'd go and we'd get the Jesus book out of his room. And, I, and you know, it started to, I started thinking, oh, oh no, oh no. Jesus doesn't like, uh, not Jesus, Jax doesn't like Jesus. Oh, this is terrible. And then like, right as I thought it, and then it hit me. What have we been reading? Oh, wait, what are, the, what are the stories I've been reading to him? Uh, I've been reading uh, David and Goliath, uh, Daniel and the lions, Jonah and the whale, Jesus in the storm. All these stories that I thought, man, these are such great stories. To Jax, they were amazing and terrifying. As in like Jax, like Jax thought, well, those are really, really cool, but they're scary. And, and he thought the Bible <clears throat> was this true thing. And, and so he looked at his Bible as like, this is dangerous. This is true. This is real. This stuff is scary, uh, dangerous. And so that gave us the opportunity to come back to Jax and say, Yes, the Bible is true, and the Bible is amazing, and the Bible is all about really good news. Uh, I'm not going to give it away, but it's all about one big story. These little stories are all about one big story. Now, I want to ask you all, what is the Bible? What's the one big story of the Bible, kids? Anybody? Y'all can just blurt it out. God. Good. Let's get a little more specific. Colby, God. God doing what? Spencer for the win. That is it right there. What is the Bible all about? It is about Jesus dying on the cross. That is what it is all, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, all builds up to Jesus dying on the cross. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus die on the cross? For our sins. Charlie for the win. For our sins to save us. Now here's the, here's the last question for y'all. How do we know, how do we know it worked? How do we know Jesus dying for our sins on the cross worked? The Bible. the Bible tells us so. And what does the Bible tell us? This is very, very good, Teddy. What does the Bible tell us? We know it worked because Jesus died and he resurrected. Y'all, is Jesus still dead? No. no, he is alive. What Jesus has done for us and what he is doing for us right now. He died for us. He has been raised for us. And right now he is looking at you, loving you, taking care of you. That is what the Bible is all about. So we're going to end with this. The so, like, so what? Here's the thing. Kids, do you know what's not going to save you? Do you know what is not going to change you? What is, what is not going to get you where you want to go? Following rules. Following rules will not save you. Following rules will not change your heart. Following rules will not get you to heaven. What is going to save you, what is going to change you, 
What is going to get you to where you want to go is what Jesus has done for you. It's the gospel. That's why we're always talking about Jesus and the gospel that he died for our sins. That, that story, that's the story I want y'all to love. That's the story I want y'all to always be thinking about is Jesus and what he has done for you and what he's doing for you right now. Because that does save you. And that does change you. That does get you to where you want to go. This unbelievable, crazy story that is true. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Nope, nope, 15. I've been saying that to myself like all week. I don't don't know what that is. Uh, We're in 1 Corinthians 15. uh, And this is... uh, this is this really, really applicable letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's dealing with all these divisions, one after another. And then we come to this, uh, come to this climactic chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where he kind of brings it all together. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So here comes chapter 15, uh, on the heels of Paul dealing with one division after another. Just a quick rehearsal. Y'all remember uh, the divisions, it started, what he dealt with first is this fighting over political divisions over which preacher in the church would make them most relevant to the cultural elite of Corinth. Then there were divisions over sexual immorality, divisions due to a vacuum of leadership, divisions from suing each other in civil courts over church matters, divisions over divorces, neglecting singles, divisions stemming from this, you know, from this idea of cheap grace and abusing Christian freedom to neglect others, to hurt others, disordered chaotic worship on Sundays, perverting communion to the point of class warfare, to divisions over narcissistic, self-centered worship where men and women abuse their God-given spiritual gifts by twisting them in on themselves in order to celebrate themselves in the worship service. And now Paul here, he makes plain and simple the answer that he's been giving them to each of these divisions the answer to all their division, it's the same answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this gospel. And he's speaking to a church made up of Gentiles and Jews. 
Greeks and Romans, and every single person in that very, very diverse, motley crew, they really would be struck by the gravity of what Paul is making plain and simple by, that, by using that term gospel. Because, because that term gospel, that word gospel, that, that term was known throughout the ancient Roman Greek world. Because when a Roman emperor would die, it would cause this political unrest, a national unrest. Like, who's going to lead now? Like, who, now what are we going to do? Until the gospel, the gospel went forth announcing the birth, the rise of a new emperor. So there's an ancient stone inscription uh, in, uh, it goes back to, they've dated it back to 9 BC. It was recovered at the ancient city of uh, Priam. I think that's how you say it. They called it the Priam calendar inscription because it marks the birthday of Caesar Augustus and the beginning of his kingdom era. And this calendar inscription is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar announcing his kingdom that brings peace and salvation for all people. It says this, through his appearance, Caesar has exceeded the hopes of all former good news, of all former gospels. For the world, the birthday of the god Caesar was the beginning of the good news. And the Romans used that word gospel to herald the good news of the arrival of a kingdom and the reign of a king that's going to bring an end to all war. Uh, so that all people of the world who surrendered and who pledged their allegiance to this king, they'd be granted salvation from you know, destruction. Okay, and the Corinthians receive a different gospel. The gospel they received is the gospel that Paul received that begins with the birth of Christ Jesus and it culminates in his death. And every Roman emperor laughs. <laughs> silly, silly Jewish king. Your death is not, uh, your death is the, is the end of your good news. Your death is the need for a new good news of a new king. And then we smile back and we say, no, the gospel of our king is his death. All our news is about the good news of his death. All the news that we have in our Bible is about the good news of our king's death. And how you know this is the good news versus the empty political nonsense good news that you've heard before. Paul says, Christ Jesus died according to the scriptures. In the gospel of Luke, so go back to the gospel of Luke, right after the resurrection of Jesus, there are two guys, they're wandering down, they're, you know, they're going down the road and Jesus walks up alongside them. This is after Jesus' death, after his resurrection now. Uh, but they are kept from recognizing him. And he asks them like why they are so miserably depressed. And they say that as far as they can tell, salvation history is over. It just dead ended at a Palestinian tomb. Jesus is dead uh, and it's done. We're done. And then Jesus says to them, you guys, are, you guys are fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then just a few verses later, this resurrected Jesus meets up with the rest of his disciples. And he says the same thing. He said, these are my words that they're, they're shocked to see him. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. <sighs> to be there. Can you imagine Jesus walking you through the Old Testament? I mean, you gotta wonder, like, where did he start? Like, to explain that it's all about him and all about his death. Where, did he start with creation, and then you go through the fall, and then all the promises of grace that lead up and, and get fulfilled in him? Like, did he talk about Noah and the flood and that he is the true ark? Did he talk about the, did he say, hey, and that Passover stuff, that's about me. Oh, all that sacrificial stuff, system uh, stuff, yeah, that's about me. I'm the true prophet. I'm the true priest. I'm the true king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ, the anointed one. Let me walk you through that and tell you what that, that's about. That he's true Israel. That he's true Adam. That he's the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. That he's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. How about that Rahab the prostitute, Deborah the judge, Esther the queen, they're all Christ figures pointing to him. That the Psalms are about him. The prophets are about him. Lady wisdom in the Proverbs, that's Jesus. I mean, this is just to name a few places that maybe that's what he touched on uh, to point to his life, his death for the salvation of his people. We can ask him when we get to heaven. Uh, and it's not, like the di it's not like the disciples could say at that point, like, what? You never, you never told us this stuff? Oh, that's amazing. There's just a few examples from Mark, Mark's gospel. Right? We could go through all, just no time. Just from Mark's gospel. This is chapter eight, verse 31. As if the disciples said, we, we didn't know that. Uh, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Just a little later in Mark, in the next chapter, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Next chapter in Mark, <clears throat> taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So, like, we didn't hear that before. What? Yeah, yeah, I told you. Yes, you did. As if you go through all four Gospels, the last month of Jesus' life, all he talks about explicitly is his death and his resurrection. There is, there's all that is very, very clear, disproportionate amount of time in each Gospel about the cross of Christ and what it means. And they finally get it. And so in the book of Acts, the message of the apostles from the very beginning is this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Paul's very, very first, and then we get to Paul, and Paul's very, very first letter to the Galatians he reminds them, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's, that was Paul's message from the beginning. And I love the way uh, this uh, uh, pastor up in Cleveland, Ohio, Alistair Begg, he, he loves this verse. He says this, he says, the word used there is the word for placarded. It is placarded. 
In the same way as you drive from an airport into the city, you're confronted by these huge signs calling out all kinds of things to do, places to go, things to purchase. It's all placarded there that all might see. That's the very word Paul uses. He says, now, when I came to Galatia, I placarded the message of the crucified Christ for all to see. What does Paul say at the beginning of his letter to these people, to the Corinthians? He says this, we preach Christ crucified because that's the message. There is no other message from beginning to the end of all the scriptures. That's the gospel. There is no other gospel. And everyone knows a gospel Everyone knows a gospel is not a biography. That's not what a gospel is. It's the announcement of a new kingdom with a new king. But this gospel is the announcement of the king who ushers in his kingdom through his death. Because this king comes to save a rebellious people to make them his people. This king comes to defeat the enemies of evil and darkness to which we are enslaved. This king comes to defeat our death by dying for us. This king dies for our sins, taking them on himself on the cross, his obedient life for our disobedient life, his bearing the weight of our punishment to give us his glory, his sacrificial death that gives us life eternal, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the broken, you got to imagine someone, one of the Jews, hearing this for the first time, one of the Gentile pagans hearing this gospel for the first time, that this guy Jesus died according to the scriptures, and he did it sacrificially for others. So what? That doesn't prove anything. Yes, it does. First response to that. Yes, it does. True story. Uh, one day in September 2008, Thomas uh, Vanderwood and his 20-year-old son, Josie, uh, who has Down syndrome, they were working in their backyard. Very, very nice day, having a great day. And then all of a sudden, Josie uh, fell through a broken uh, septic tank cover uh, in, the, in their backyard. And the tank was eight feet deep, and it was filled with sewage. So Thomas sees it, and he runs and he tries and tries and tries to rescue his son uh, by pulling on his arm from above. He cannot get his head above the sewage. So he dives in head first. And he hoists his son up on his shoulder, getting his head above the sewage. And Josie cries and cries and cries for help. Minutes later, they come. They get Josie out. They get the dad out. But by that time, his dad had died. Um, a journalist later writes about this uh, and he's struggling with this story because he's an atheist and he doesn't know how to make sense of it. He says this, he says, religion has its problems, but that doesn't mean atheism has the upper hand. On the contrary, atheism in its currently fashionable form is an intellectual sham. This is something that he says, hey, this is something that any father, atheist or believer would do for his child. But only the believer can make sense of what happened. 
He said, pick your favorite non-theistic theory. Rational choice, other Marxist economically based accounts hold that people act to benefit themselves in everything that they do. Then this dad, like the self-sacrificing soldier or firefighter, they're fools who incomprehensibly place the good of another ahead of his own. How about other atheistic theories that deny the possibility of genuine altruism, reject the possibility of free will, or forms of evolutionary psychology that argue people sacrifice themselves for others in order to strengthen kinship ties, and in so doing, they, they maximize the spread of their genes throughout the gene pool? Those are all exposed as farces. Josie had Down syndrome. Judged from a purely evolutionary standpoint, he deserves to die off anyway. So again, the dad is a fool. What is it about the story of a man who willingly embraces a revolting, horrifying death in order to save his son? What is it that moves us to tears? And he says he thinks the Christian gospel is the only thing that actually makes sense of it. That God became a man and allowed himself to be unjustly tried, convicted, punished, killed in the most painful and humiliating manner possible, all as an act of gratuitous love for the very people who did the deed. Why does Vanderwood's act of sacrifice move us? He says, maybe because in freely dying for his son, he gives us a fleeting glimpse of the love that moves the sun and the other stars, a glimpse of the gospel. So here's my second response to Jesus' death doesn't prove anything. That's not all Paul says. Jesus didn't just die for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, Paul says a lot uh, uh, about the resurrection that we're going we're gonna to get into next week. But right here he says that the resurrection is the victory of Jesus' life and death. It's his vindication that the gospel of Christ crucified, it really, really does save sinners. Because you know, you know who did not believe in Jesus' resurrection? Jesus' disciples. Until they saw Jesus raised from the dead, and it wasn't just Jesus' close disciples uh, uh, that, that finally came to believe, like, this is true. It's not just Jesus' disciples. Over 500 different people saw him at one time. And Paul says, and you can go talk to them because most of them are still alive today. You know who else didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection? It's Paul. Paul so did not believe uh, in this Jesus stuff that he led a campaign to round up those who did believe this stuff. He rounded them up in order to execute them until he met the risen Jesus. Then this Paul who hated Jesus, who wanted to wipe out his memory, who hated the church and wanted to wipe her out of existence, he gives his life to proclaiming the gospel about Jesus. And he's given his life to proclaim this gospel to a people he used to hate, the Gentiles. Because now he loves them. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. Lots of people do not like this gospel good news about Jesus, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, lots of people out there don't like this stuff. And we in here also struggle. We share in their struggles too, just like 
just like unbelievers, we struggle with this, that, that we can avoid, we can avoid this gospel like Jacks used to not want to be around his Bible because we know it's true. And we don't like the exclusivity of it. Uh, this, man, it's so all or nothing. Uh, we don't like the authority of it. The restrictions it puts on me, the labels it puts on me, so instinctively we avoid it. We just find ways to avoid this gospel until we are confronted with it again and we remember that this gospel is good news. Which is why, like Paul, this is why we preach it. This is why we will always preach it. J.R. Tolkien, our fave, uh, is a writer, he's a poet, he's a philologist. Y'all have heard this before, but it, it means this guy knew languages better than anybody. Uh, he, he was into literary criticism, linguistics, so before he wrote that stuff of The Hobbit, before he wrote that stuff of The Lord of the Rings, what he did was he created entire histories for all this stuff. He was the first one to really do that. And he made up more, he made up more than 20 languages. He's a nerd, but he, he did it because he loved this world he created. He created a, a grammar, a vocabulary, uh, uh, his own alphabet. And then on top of that stuff, he constructed his narratives, his stories. So... Uh, you know, you may, uh, it's fine. You, regardless of what you think about the Middle East, you get like respect the genius kind of thing. Uh, no one, I, really no one is ever going to create something like that again. Not like that. Uh, Tolkien understood what a story is. He knew how to tell one. And he wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories. And Tolkien argues that there is a story, there's a kind of story that brings us unbelievable joy, whether it's a movie, whether it's a story uh, that you're reading or a play that you're, you're, you're seeing, uh, a story we hear sung about, that he says there are certain stories that bring us unbelievable joy. And these stories always have, their, they always have the same gist to them. He says, there's always some incredible hopeless situation, and then victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat, always through someone who comes and whose weakness turns out to be a strength, someone who defeats, someone whose defeat turns out to be a victory. And Tolkien says, you know why that is? It's because there's a story in all the stories. There's one story that all the other stories are based on, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only the gospel, only this gospel can actually fill your heart with everlasting joy because of all the great stories, this one is not one more myth pointing to the reality, it's the reality. The reality that all the other stories point, point to, it really happened. This really, is this really is an incredibly hopeless situation. There really is a defeat that turns out to be a victory. There really is a villain. There really is a hero who sacrifices his life to save us. So in all our divisions, it, loved ones, in all our divisions in the church, in all your divisions in your life, outside of here, you cannot obey your way out of trouble. Loved ones, you cannot control your way out of your trouble. And you cannot bear and grit your way out of your trouble. And you cannot success your way out of your trouble. And you cannot drink or distract or comfort your way out of your trouble. Paul is writing to a church that is steeped in trouble and division. And y'all look around you. This is not a group of good people. I love you. 
but we are a group of bad people. And there is good news. Why does Paul say, why does Paul add that bit that he died and he was buried? Like, why does he add that part about being buried? It's because he rose bodily. As in, this man can save you. This man can help you because he is actually alive right now. On the first day, uh, you know, going back to seminary uh, with Jax, on the first day of my class in seminary, my beloved uh, professor, Rick Lentz, he walks in, his first, first time uh, he's teaching a uh, class that I'm in, sits down, he gives some formal introduction, welcome to systematic theology, you know, uh, class, on, and this one's on Christology, and he asked us, this is just the first question he asked us, he said, okay, so where is Jesus Christ? Like right now, where is he? And no one answered. And you've got first-year seminary students, which is what I am, and you've got third-year seminary students uh, in this particular course, all super smart, all super sure of themselves, at least, you know, biblically speaking, and no one said a word. And I thought, I remember thinking, I know the answer, but I'm not going to be that first-year student who, like, you know, and try to embarrass the other students, so I'll just sit here humbly and grin. And there's just silence, and that silence goes on. And then it turns into awkward silence. And then it's just suspense to the point where I start to doubt my answer. Like, oh, wait, wait. What if, well, I'm going to jumble the question. I'll look so stupid. I'm not going to, okay. And, and Rick doesn't say anything. He sits there. And, and, I, and, then, and then it hits me that this is a brilliant moment of teaching. I look around to make sure I'm not the only one tearing up. And I wasn't. Because what he was doing was he was purposefully letting the unbelievable gravity, the unbelievable reality of the gospel settle in and shake us that Jesus right now is alive and he is raised from the dead and he has ascended to heaven and glory and he really is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he really is ruling over the cosmos and he really is loving his people. It's the gospel and it's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this good news. There is no other good news like this news. Lord, we um, praise your son for it, for doing what we can't do. We praise you because it's true. We thank you that it's true. We pray that the gospel would be the story that captivates our hearts that, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be what we run to in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, when we wake up again, knowing that we can't save ourselves. The good news is that it's been done for us. Help us to look to our Savior. Help us to hold on to him. Help us to stand fast together in this gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.